0: All right, all right, greetings, Earthling. You have landed on Renegade Files, your underground connection to paranormal tales, unsolved mysteries, covert culture, and all those stories where the official narrative clashes with logic. I'm your host, Lex Gordon, broadcasting a pirate radio signal from the Jungle Villa Outpost, deep in the uncharted tropics. This is Renegade Files, episode 57, Betty and Barney Hill vs. Travis Walton – An Abduction Analysis In this episode, we'll take a look at two, and quite possibly the top two, alien abduction claims of the modern era. First, we'll look at the curious case of honeymooners Betty and Barney Hill, who say they were abducted into a flying saucer along a highway in 1961. Then we'll hike into the woods to hear the tale of lumberjack Travis Walton, who claimed to have been abducted by aliens from a forestry operation in 1975. This episode will be a bit more casual. I'm just going to go over the cases and explore my own opinions about the stories, see what similarities we can find, and in the end, try to land on a conclusion about all this. Probably like you, I love all the topics of high strangeness. I love crazy stories, I love the weird stuff, and I believe there's likely to be vast life in the cosmos. We know there are many unsolved mysteries right here on Earth. But I will admit that the subject of alien abductions specifically is one topic about which I'm quite skeptical. As Carl Sagan said, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. I'm not a total debunker. But I think there's a lot of things going on here. It's very interesting. So on this episode, we dive deep into the stories of alien abductions as told by two of the most well-known to have ever relayed such experiences. We'll look at the situations, the claims, witness testimonies, connections between the cases, and some possible motives for or sources of hijinks keep your eyes on the skies and come with me as we take a relaxed but thorough look into the alien abduction events of Betty and Barney Hill and Travis Walton. First, let's go over the Betty and Barney Hill case. If you are looking into this case on your own, it's also referred to as the Barney and Betty Hill incident, the Hill abduction, and my favorite, the Zeta Reticuli incident. And we'll get into the Zeta Reticuli connection as we go further into this story. So here's some background on the experiencers and the basics of what happened. Barney and Betty Hill lived in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Barney was employed by the post office, and Betty was a social worker. They were active in their local Unitarian church, they were members of the NAACP, and Barney was on the board of the United States Commission on Civil Rights. They were an interracial couple, Barney being African American and Betty being Caucasian, at a time when, by all accounts, that would have been a difficult social position. So what happened was this, at 10.30 at night, on September 19, 1961, Barney and Betty Hill were driving back to Portsmouth from a vacation in Niagara Falls, I believe it was their honeymoon. In 1961, Barney would have been 39 and Betty would have been 42. While driving along US Route 3, just south of Lancaster, New Hampshire, in an area that would have been described as the middle of nowhere, essentially out in the woods, Betty claimed to see a light in the sky that moved below the moon and between the moon and the planet Jupiter. It moved upward to the west of the moon. Barney was driving the car and at first Betty thought she was seeing a falling star, but then it turned and moved upward. It moved erratically, it grew bigger, and it grew brighter. They had their dog Delcy with them, a Datsun they had recently adopted, and it was time for the dog to take a walk. So. Because Betty was seeing this weird thing in the sky, and it was a good time to take the dog out, they pulled over at one of those little picnic areas. This would have been just south of what they call Twin Mountain. Betty says she was looking through the binoculars when she observed what she called an odd-shaped craft flashing multicolored lights, and she watched it through the binoculars fly across the face of the moon. Several years before, her sister had said she saw a flying saucer, so Betty thought that might be what she was seeing at the time. Barney thought it might be a commercial airliner traveling toward Vermont. However, he changed his mind pretty quickly because of the erratic motions of the craft. He wasn't sure what it was, but he said it probably wasn't a plane. The hills continued driving on the dark road. It was isolated, and when they came to a spot called the Franconia Notch, they slowed way down. So this was an area where the road sort of crested, and they could get a good view of the sky above the twists and turns of this mountain road. And as they did, they saw this object pass above a signal tower on top of uh, Cannon Mountain. Betty testified that it was at, it was at least one and a half times the length of the granite cliff profile of what they called the Old Man of the Mountain. As a rock formation in the area. So essentially, she's saying it's about 100 feet long, I guess. And it it seemed to be rotating. The couple watched it. They said it was silent. It was illuminated. It moved erratically. It bounced back and forth in the sky. Then about a mile south of an area known as Indian Head, they said the object rapidly descended toward their vehicle, causing Barney to stop in the middle of the road. Okay, so we're just going to pause right there to address two things. First of all, a question has arisen, which was, why did they have binoculars? Well, you know, it's the 60s. They're on a long road trip through the dark. Barney Hill is a 39-year-old guy. He's prepared. He's a professional guy. He works for the post office. He's probably pretty capable. And it wouldn't be unusual to take a pair of binoculars on a road trip. I have a pair of binoculars that I keep in my truck. But... The other part of that is, Betty saying that she was looking through the binoculars and she observed an odd shaped craft flashing multicolored lights as it flew across the face of the moon. So if anyone has ever tried to look at the moon through binoculars, or even find it in a telescope, it's very difficult to do. And it would be almost, I'm not going to say impossible, but it would be a difficult proposition to hold the binoculars steady enough to watch something fly across the face of the moon and realize that it was a weird shape and that it had multicolored light. If, if you were looking through binoculars at the moon and something flew across it, it's very likely that you wouldn't even see it. Back in the old days, before there was such a thing as Photoshop, there was a very famous photograph that someone took of the moon and it had in silhouette in front of it a 747 that just happened to be flying by at the time, The photographer didn't even know until he developed the film, and he was able to sell it to one of the airlines, I think Delta. It would have been a bigger deal back then. Now you could just make that in the computer in five minutes. But the point is, it's a little bit suspect. It's not entirely impossible. It just sounds like a little bit of a stretch to me personally that she was looking through the binoculars and was able to see an odd shaped craft that flashed multicolored lights and watch it as it flew across the face of the moon. That sounds more cinematic than uh, realistic. Just my opinion, so let's, let's keep on trucking here. So at this point, they're about a mile south of Indian Head. They'd watched the object fly over a communication tower. They judged it to be about 100 feet long. It descended rapidly toward them and hovered 80 to 100 feet above the road in front of them. It was huge craft. It filled the entire view of their windshield. Barney said it reminded him of a huge pancake. So I guess a low, flat disc. He also had a pistol in the car, so he put that in his pocket. And he stepped out of the vehicle, moved closer to the object, and through the binoculars, he looked and he saw what he described as 8 to 11 humanoid figures. He could see them moving around inside the craft. He was using the binoculars and looking through the window, and I guess the thing was stationary. He said that they moved to the window and seemed to be looking at him. He said in unison, all but one figure moved to what appeared to be a panel on the rear wall of the hallway that encircled the front portion of the craft. The one remaining figure continued to stare at Barney and communicated a message to him telling him, Stay where you are and keep looking. Barney said that this came to him telepathically, although he didn't use that term. I think he said thought transference or something like that. Barney had a recollection of observing the humanoid forms wearing glossy black uniforms and black caps. He said these wings started to telescope out of the side of the craft and they had red lights on them and a long structure descended from the bottom of it so like a ramp coming down to the road. This is very sci-fi, right? The silent craft approached to what Barney estimated to be within 50 to 80 feet overhead and 300 feet away from him. He said that the beings were somehow not human. And that's a quote that he gave to investigator Walter Webb who worked for NICAP which was National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena. That would have been the predecessor to ATIP and RO and all that. He made that report on October 21st 1961. So just a few days after this happened. And presumably Betty saw the same thing and up to this point I guess what happened is the thing flies away and they drive home. And their stories are the same, exactly the same as far as the description of what happened that night right till then. So even that is a remarkable UFO encounter. But that's just the beginning here. So they get home about dawn and they said that they had these impulses that they couldn't explain. like. Betty wanted to put the luggage by the back door instead of like in the front of the house where they would normally put it down. Their watches stopped working, and they both said their watches would never work again. Barney noticed that the leather strap on his binoculars was torn, but he couldn't remember how it had gotten torn. Barney said the toes of the shoes he had been wearing were all scraped up, and he was compelled to do a thorough sort of inventory of his body parts in the bathroom, and didn't find anything unusual they both took long showers because they were afraid they might have been contaminated by the ufo and they also both drew pictures of what they had seen they talked about it you know they were perplexed they said they tried to reconstruct the chronology of the events and where they were and what had happened and immediately after you know they they had seen the thing and it was it was very discouraging to them that they couldn't remember everything in the same order. They said that their f- memories had become incomplete and fragmented. So eventually they both fell asleep. And Betty woke up and she put her shoes and clothes in the closet. And she said that she realized her dress was torn, maybe at the zipper, I guess, and the lining or something. She also said that she noticed that there was a pink powder all over her dress. She hung the dress and her clothes on a clothesline and the pink powder blew away, so we'll never know what that was. But she said the dress was irreparably damaged. She threw the dress away. She changed her mind and got it back out and hung it in her closet. And over the years, five laboratories have conducted uh, analysis on the dress. I don't think they found anything otherworldly, though. They also noticed when they went outside the next morning that there were circles on their car trunk. Like shiny, concentric circles. I don't think it was scratched, but she said that, uh, or they both said it hadn't been there before. I guess Barney took a compass, for whatever reason, and put it over these scratches on the car, or these swirl marks on the car. And he said that when he moved the compass close to these swirls in the paint, that the needle would spin. And when he moved it away, it would go back to being stationary. But... I'm not sure. I don't think the car was ever examined either. So there was a Boston astronomer and a NICAP member, Walter Webb, who we mentioned before. He met with the Hills on October 21st. He did a six-hour interview with them, and they related all they could. They told him everything they could remember. Barney said he had some kind of mental block, and he suspected there were portions of the event that he couldn't remember, or maybe he was repressing He described everything he could about the craft and the appearance and the not-human figures on it. Webb stated that they were telling the truth, and the incident probably occurred exactly as reported. And so that was the basics of the story, you know, up to that point. So after this encounter, Betty starts having dreams. She starts having these vivid dreams, and they continued for like a week or so. She said that, She experienced them with a degree of detail and intensity she had never had before. After the fifth night, these dreams stopped and she never had them again. They did occupy her thoughts, she said, and she mentioned them to Barney. He was sympathetic, but he wasn't really concerned. They both sort of stopped talking about it. Then later in the winter of that same year, or a few months later, I guess, November, So this happened in in September. So in November, she started writing down the details of the dream because she kept remembering them. She said in one dream, she came to a roadblock where men surrounded her car. She lost consciousness and struggled to wake up, and she realized she was being forced by men to walk into a forest at night, and she saw Barney behind her. When she called out to him, he was in a trance or something. The men stood around... They all had, like, uniforms on and hats and looked like military guys. She said they were nearly human, dark eyes, prominent noses, but that their skin was gray. And these are all, like, her stories of her own dreams. So it's not super conclusive. So first of all, while while it's not fresh in my mind, let's just go over a few other things that stand out here. So, this all took place in 1961. These two people were newlyweds and they were coming back from their honeymoon and a vacation in Niagara Falls. It's very likely that they had some celebratory drinks. No one really ever says if they did or didn't drink. You could imagine that they probably did in the 60s have a have a drink or two. And that we have to remember this is prime time MKUltra dosing people with LSD territory. Okay? Not only is it the time, it's the area. And we start to think of a few connections if we look at this story through that lens. Now, when they get home, they have this compulsion to do odd things, like put the luggage in a different place, put their clothes away, take their clothes back out. They're doing all this manic stuff, inspecting themselves in the shower, taking long showers. And then we have this situation of her having these incredibly vivid dreams, dreams that are more vivid and realistic than she's ever had. All of these things are potential side effects or lingering effects of, of taking LSD. It isn't, it isn't that every single person has every one of these things every time. That's a big part of the problem with LSD as a mind control drug, something that MKUltra found out. It's not reliable because it affects everyone so differently. But these are things that have been said to affect people. You have this nesting thing, you wanna clean yourself up again, you wanna come back to earth, and you wouldn't maybe call it flashbacks but your your imagination has been ignited in such a way that now your dreams are more vivid. That's very common. And I'm not saying that's exactly what happened. I don't have any evidence for it other than just a gut observation, right? And then she has these crazy dreams. You know, they're, they would have been under a lot of pressure. They're an interracial couple. It's 1961. And all of her dreams are about people making them do stuff, like making them walk in the woods and putting Barney in a car and, like, all this borderline weirdness. The the people in the dreams are kind of like aliens, but they're more like military people or, or policemen or something. I don't know. It just seems a little bizarre. Another possibility is that they took LSD or were dosed LSD without their knowledge and then actually did see a UFO, right? Doesn't mean they were taken up in the ship, though. And up until this point, no one really says that that was the case. They do discover some missing time, or at least they conclude that that's the case. So one of their main questions when they when they sort of did finally seek some deeper medical help was how long did the drive take, right? So the hills noted that they had arrived home later than they anticipated. A 178 mile drive should have taken about 4 hours. They didn't realize it right away, but it took about 7 hours. The couple had no explanation for this. It was labeled as missing time by the ufologists. The Hills claimed to recall almost nothing of the 35 miles of US Route 3 between Lincoln and Indian Head and Ashland. They claimed that they saw an image of a fiery orb sitting on the ground. Betty and Barney reasoned that it must have been the moon, but the investigators that spoke to them said that the moon had set far earlier that evening. So you see that we run into these little discrepancies. Did they see a fiery orb sitting on the ground, or did they see a craft so big it filled their windshield at a hundred yards and through binoculars they saw eleven people in uniforms inside of it? So that's a pretty those are pretty big differences in description, right? So on November 23rd, 1962, this is basically a year, a little bit more than a year after the incident. They, they went to a meeting at their church, and there was a Captain Ben Sweat of the United States Air Force as a guest speaker. And I guess this Ben Sweat had an interest in hypnosis. I don't know how they would have known that. Maybe it was part of his presentation. But the Hills approached him after, and they told him their story about the UFO and seeing it land and all that. Sweat was particularly interested in the missing time part of their story, and they asked if he would hypnotize them because they thought they had memories that they had blocked or repressed. And Sweat declined, and he, he also cautioned them against going to an amateur hypnotist. I guess it's possible he suggested they seek more professional opinion, or that's what they inferred from his, his cautionary advice. So they did just that. They did go to see a, a hypnotist. And here's where things kind of start to go off the rails. So under hypnosis with uh, Dr. Si- a man named Dr. Simon, Barney reported that the binocular strap had broken when he ran from the UFO back to his car. So that's fine. That would be a good, positive, sort of productive use of hypnosis. Everything they had done and said up to that point, they have in their waking memory. He got home, the binocular strap was broken, he goes under hypnosis, and he remembers that somehow he broke it when he was trying to run back from the UFO back to his car. So, up until now, still a pretty believable story, right? He said that the car stalled and three of the men from the UFO approached the car. Barney said under hypnosis that the beings stared into his eyes with a terrifying, mesmerizing effect. And you can hear recordings of him under hypnosis describing these things. And on one hand, I thought it might be a good opportunity to play some of those recordings, but on the other hand, it doesn't really give us a whole lot of information. And I I don't know. I'm just not going to do it. You can find them on the internet if you want to. They are interesting in a certain sort of sad way, (laughs) Uh, because the guy really does sound scared, but just because you're scared telling some creepy story when you're hypnotized, it really isn't proof of anything. I hate to say it, so I'm just not going to include it here. He does say that they told him to close his eyes and that they took him onto the ship. And he said that all all that he could see were were their eyes. And he felt like their eyes were connected to his body. He said that they're up close and his eyes, their eyes were pressing against his eyes. This all also has borderline LSD trip vibes, right? So Betty reported having a conversation with a person she called the leader. This is also under hypnosis. She said that they took both of them on the ship and that Barney heard them speaking in some language he didn't understand. A few times they communicated with both of them. Barney said it seemed more like thought transference, so that's the word that he uses, uh, instead of telepathy. Under hypnosis, Betty said that she had five dreams about the UFO abduction, with some notable differences pertaining to her capture and release. And for the most part... All of their memories that came out under the hypnotic regression were the same. So Betty and Barney Hill had the same story as far as what happened. They say they were took aboard the ship, that their men were in uniforms, and they did this or that to them. And that then they put them back in their car, and then that's when they woke up. So Dr. Simon, who did the hypnosis, wrote an article about the Hills for the Journal of Psychiatric Opinion. And he explained in his conclusion that he thought the case was what he called a singular psychological aberration. So something that happened to these people one time that no one could explain, a sort of dual shared mental glitch, if you will. Right. So after that, the Hills kind of went back to their regular lives. They really didn't do a whole lot about it. They they were willing to discuss the encounter with their friends and family and You know, there would be an occasional UFO researcher that would contact them or call them or write them a letter. They always were polite. They always told their story, but they didn't seek any publicity. So then, I guess, four years after the incident and three years after their dabble in the hypnosis field, there was a front page story written in the Boston Traveler. The title was UFO Chiller. Did they seize couple? They was all caps referring to the aliens. It was John H. Luttrell, who was a reporter, and he had gotten a hold of some audio tapes of a lecture the Hills had made back in 1963, I guess on the subject of the abduction. And he had also learned that the Hills had gone under hypnosis with Simon. He obtained notes from that interview, and or at least that one and another one, and he used that to write the article, and then UPI, which is United Press International, sort of a clearinghouse for news stories. They picked the story up and turned it into international news. They sent it out to all the on the wires, as they would have said back then, right? And then after that, we have this situation where under hypnosis, Betty had drawn a sketch of what she called the star map. She said that while she was on the ship, one of the aliens had given her a book and that Before she could get off the ship, the other aliens kind of objected and made her give the book back. And that either in the book or somewhere in the craft, she had seen a map of the stars. Maybe she dreamt about it as well. And at some point, she drew a map of it, which is basically dots on a piece of paper with lines between them, right? In 1968, Marjorie Fish of Ohio, she had read a book called Interrupted Journey, and this was written by Fuller. It was about the Hill's experience, and he had put a picture of Betty's star map in there. So Marjorie Fish was an amateur astronomer, but a pretty good one by all accounts, and she deciphered the star system. I won't go into the whole story, but she had used a book called the Jalees Star Catalog, which is uh, a book listing stars located within 82 light years of the sun, So comparing the data in that book to thousands of vantage points over several years, she concluded that the map drawn by Betty Hill was from the viewpoint of the double star system of Zeta Reticuli. That's 39 light years from Earth. And this is why this incident is also called the Zeta Reticuli Incident, because there's a group of people that believe the map that Betty Hill drew shows the Zeta Reticuli star system. After that, this whole thing just sort of gets beat around the UFO circles, and we get into these claims of possible explanations. So right away, there's a few standouts in the debunking community as, as far as this case goes. Jim McDonald is a person who lives in the area right around where the Hills say they were abducted. And he produced a detailed analysis of their road trip. And what he concluded was that this was a misperceiving of an aircraft warning beacon on Cannon Mountain. And he said that from the road the hills took, the beacon sort of appears and disappears based on how it rotates, I guess, and where the trees cover it and then don't cover it. And what he figured out was that that beacon can be seen from the road and then not seen from the road at exactly the same times that the hills describe the UFO as appearing and disappearing. The remainder of the experience he ascribes to stress, sleep deprivation, and just being wrong. We have UFO expert Robert Schaefer who says that the Hills are the poster children for not driving while sleep deprived. It's it's just one of those things. There's a lot, there's a lot that goes on. So then we have another situation, which is the television show, The Outer Limits. It broadcast an episode called The Bolero Shield. That episode aired after the Hills had made their road trip, but just two weeks before they went into their first hypnotic session. The episode featured an extraterrestrial with large eyes, and he looks like the drawing Barney Hill did of the alien. Now, when you compare the two... To be honest, they really don't look that much alike, uh, as far as they both have big eyes. But nowadays, we're pretty used to seeing uh, uh, aliens with big eyes. And I don't know, I'm not sure, but it was a story about aliens abducting people, and it's just a little suspect. Another thing that one of the creatures in that television show said was, quote, "...in all the universes, in all the unities beyond the universe..." All who have eyes have eyes that speak. And there's been some speculation that that line influenced Barney Barney's sort of recollection of the eyes that spoke to him, right? We also have notorious debunker Philip J. Class chiming in. Uh, you know, I tend to disregard a lot of what he says because most of it is everyone who saw a UFO, uh, according to Philip J. Class, saw a star, After the article appeared in the Boston newspaper, The Hill sort of became these UFO celebrities, although Betty latched onto that far more than did Barney. Unfortunately, I guess Barney passed away in 1969. He was 46 years old. Betty lived to be 85 years old. She passed away in 2004. And between the time that Barney died in 69 and Betty died 2004, Betty became pretty well known on the UFO circuit, as it were, going to conferences and events. And it could be said that she sort of lost it in a way as she grew older. And, and not terribly older. I guess that we have UFO expert Robert Schaefer. He's the one that said they were the poster children for not driving when you need sleep or whatever. He tells us a story about him being at the National UFO Conference in New York in 1980... And at that conference, Betty was scheduled to present and that she showed what he said was no less than 200 slides of pictures that she said were UFOs, pictures that she had taken, but all of them were just blurs on black background or like, you know, could be anything type sort of smeared white spots among the stars or whatever. And he said that she went twice as long as she was allotted to speak and That by the end of it, she was just making no sense and showing these pictures of just white dots on black backgrounds over and over, saying that this one was chasing her car and that this one had landed and just sort of rambling and all the way to the point where the audience sort of jeered her off the stage. And that's kind of sad. She would have been 61 at the time, and you wouldn't think that she would have completely lost it by then, at least hopefully not, but who knows. She wrote a self-published book called A Common Sense Approach to UFOs, which Schaefer says is filled with delusional stories, such as seeing entire squadrons of UFOs in flight and a truck levitating above the freeway being lifted up into a UFO. Schaefer said that as late as 1977... Betty Hill would go on UFO vigils at least three times a week. So she would go out into the field or out into the woods or whatever to look for UFOs. And at one time, she was joined by John Oswald, who was also a UFO researcher. And when asked about Betty's continuing UFO observations, Oswald said, quote, she is not really seeing UFOs, but she is calling them that. He said on the night they went out together, Mrs. Hill was unable to distinguish between a landed UFO and a streetlight. And, you know, this is too bad, but it's also not the only sort of criticism of her work. It's more of the firsthand criticism of her observations in in later years. So anyway, in 2004, Betty Hill's niece, Kathleen Marden, wrote a book called Captured, which she co-authored with Stanton Friedman, who we all know, a famous ufologist and, and nuclear physicist. Friedman spoke at great length about the Betty and Barney Hill incident, and he, I don't think he was ever really convinced either way. We also have the film The UFO Incident. That was a dramatization of the Hill's abduction and its aftermath, in which the Hills are played by James Earl Jones and Estelle Parsons. That movie was in 1975, and it came out just right before the incident with Travis Walton that we're going to get to, and it's one of those things that connects the two. A lot of people say that it is possible Travis Walton saw the UFO incident, which was about the Hills being abducted, and that that influenced his story, but his story is completely different. We'll get to it. And as far as the Betty and Barney Hill story in the popular media, you know, there was a bunch of other movies and sort of television shows about it, a Dark Horse comic book where they retold the story in the series called Blue Book, Dark Horse Comics, and several other other things in popular culture, of course. But we do have information that the powerhouse movie producing duo of Michelle and Barack Obama are going to make a Betty and Barney Hill movie. I'm not sure. Uh, If you don't know the Obamas also produced uh, the very recent movie made for Netflix called Leave the World Behind which is just filled with symbolism and end of the world sort of pre-programming one could argue and so much so that Isaac Weishaupt of Occult Symbolism and Pop Culture has already done two episodes on the movie so check out his analysis if you've already seen the film i don't know just one of those things it's just weird why why are the obamas producing these ufo alien end of the world scenario movies it's a little unnerving actually <laughs> i'm not sure what they're up to but um regardless maybe it's just harmless and uh, maybe they're just into sci-fi so that's basically the, the short and sweet version of the Barney and Betty Hill incident, or as I like to call it, the Zeta Reticuli incident. So it's, it's one of those stories, right? It's full tilt inconclusive. It's based entirely on someone telling you something. We don't have a photograph. We don't have a piece of the alien's uniform. We don't have a piece of paper. We don't have anything. We just have Betty and Barney Hill. They went on a little trip, they came back, they saw a UFO, they went under hypnosis, and under hypnosis, they remembered that they were taken onto the ship. Those kind of stories are always a little suspect to me. So, that's the case. That's it. That's as as complicated and, and and as convoluted as it gets. I don't know. I mean... I'm sure you can maybe hear it in my voice and I don't need to mean to like get off the fence so soon, but I'm always a little suspicious of these stories, you know? Oh, you know, I'm not saying they didn't see something. I, I'm also not saying they didn't get abducted into the, into the craft. It is possible. I guess stranger things have happened and there may be reasons that they don't have any, any evidence. You know, I don't, I don't really know. Um, there's a few things that stand out. Like I said, this is primetime MK ultra territory. These are both lower-level government employees, a social worker, and a post office guy. I mean, and they're they're an interracial couple, which is neither here nor there to me personally, but at the time, they are just targets for some kind of MKUltra hijinks. It's just in my experience, and after doing that episode, check it out if you haven't. We did a whole episode on MKUltra. So it just seems to me that this whole thing sort of screams some kind of monkeying with their psyche. Uh, By all accounts, Betty Hill was the dominant one and the stronger personality, and Barney Hill was a very, very smart man, but also, they say, very gullible man, and that's just hearsay, but it is the hearsay that I hear say, so you know what I mean? Um, I'm not sure. It just seems that there's more going on here than exactly what they say, particularly since Their only recollection of being in the spacecraft came, I don't know, a year later when they went under hypnosis or whatever. It's interesting that the New Hampshire Division of Historical Resources put an actual metal sign there that marks the location of the alleged abduction with a historical marker. It's, um, I don't know, doesn't, it's an official, at least, acknowledgement of their story, regardless. So that's the Betty and Barney Hill story. So let's move on and let's get into the Travis Walton abduction. The Travis Walton incident took place on the 5th of November 1975 when Travis was 22 years old. He was part of a seven-man logging crew working on a federal contract to thin small trees in an area known as Turkey Springs in the Apache Sitgraves National Forest in Arizona. One thing I thought was interesting but most people don't seem to ever mention when discussing the Travis Walton event is that the forest in Arizona where this happened is almost exactly halfway between Area 51 and Roswell, New Mexico. It's also about that same distance north of Phoenix, where we had the Phoenix Lights UFO mass sightings. In other words, these guys were working right in the middle of what I would call the extraterrestrial triangle. It's primetime UFO territory if there is one in America, right in the middle of a triangle formed by Roswell, Phoenix, and Area 51. So the story goes that Travis, along with six other guys from a logging crew, were driving back to town after a long day of work, cutting trees and clearing brush in the forest. It was getting dark, which was unusual, because normally the crew would have preferred to travel the sketchy logging road back into town in daylight, or at least twilight. But on that day, they had worked late. They were trying to catch up on an enormous undertaking of clearing saplings in what I think was about a 1700 acre area. So they were driving back along this road and they all saw at the same time a 40 foot saucer shaped UFO complete with glowing lights hovering above the tree line ahead. They said it looked metallic, glowed an amber color. The driver stopped the truck, and Travis got out for whatever reason. He said he was compelled. He walked toward the object, and it descended, and then it stopped about 40 feet off the ground and 20 or so yards away. Then the saucer lifted, and when it did, it blasted Travis through the air, and he landed about 20 feet away, and the crew thought that he had been killed, and fearing for their own lives, they fled in the truck. The men went back to town and when Travis wasn't with them and when he didn't show up over the next few days, the crew became suspects in some foul play. The local sheriff gave them all polygraph tests asking them if they had harmed or killed Travis or left him for dead after some logging accident and all of them said no and they also all passed the lie detector tests. They all had the same story about seeing a UFO and seeing their friend get blasted and becoming scared and running for it. Walton was declared missing and remained so for five days. On the morning of the sixth day, Travis awoke on the road. He stood to see the same UFO ascending into the sunrise sky and he wandered the road toward what he hoped was civilization. At the edge of town where the men had been staying for the forestry job, Travis came upon what is now a Mexican restaurant. I'm not sure what it was back then, but I think it was some kind of restaurant or like a market. He found a phone booth outside and called his sister and told her where he was. At that point, Travis believed he had only been gone for a few hours, maybe since the night before. But a five day growth of beard and his shocked friends soon convinced him otherwise. Incidentally, that phone booth has been maintained and preserved at the site of what is now the Casa Ramos Mexican restaurant in Heber, Arizona. And it's somewhat of a tourist attraction. The building has a really good mural depicting Travis being lifted into the saucer by a beam of light, UFOs in the trees, and a dark forest in the background. It's really cool. So after that, the other guys were basically let off the hook for killing or abandoning Travis at night. They all continued to tell the same story up to the point of seeing Travis blasted through the air by the UFO. They all said they saw it. None of them changed their story, even to this day, and that was the end of it for most of them. Eventually, Travis wrote a book, and that became a movie called "Fire in the Sky." And I read that the crew received $5,000 from the National Enquirer as part of a Proof of UFOs contest the Enquirer was running back in the 70s. And even if we leave it at that, we have one of the most amazing UFO encounters ever recorded or retold in modern times. But it seems that this whole thing had shaken Travis up pretty bad. And regardless of what happened, that's understandable. So at some point, he started going to hypnotic regression sessions, and this is where we get the details of his time aboard the flying saucer at the hands of the aliens. Under hypnosis, he remembered that he awoke on a table surrounded by what he described as what we would call classic alien greys. He grabbed a pipe or a glass tube or something and tried to hit one of them, but they just left the room. He then ran into or was greeted by another alien who he says looked more like a human and basically told him to chill out. He ran out of that room and found himself in the hallways of the ship and the next thing he knew he was waking up on the sort of operating table again in the room where he had found himself to begin with. The alien graves were back and they did a bunch of stuff to him and then he rolled over and was on the highway where he stood up watched what looked like the same UFO fly away, and walked to the payphone to call his sister. The classic issue here is that all of this time on the ship he tells us about comes from his hypnotic regression sessions, and frankly, it doesn't inspire a great deal of confidence in the story. Not saying it didn't happen, but just like in the Betty and Barney Hill case, all we have is their words and tales. And those only come after them being hypnotized. Remember, none of the loggers saw Travis lifted into the ship. They just saw him blown across the forest ground, and he landed in a way that made them fear for their own safety and run for it. It's only after his returning, then being hypnotized, that even Travis himself ends up on the abduction story, I'm just keeping it real here. But one interesting facet to this is that the paranormal claims of alien abduction and even those of the other six guys seeing a UFO blast their friend through the air come to us from what seem like very credible and reliable, sober guys with no real agenda. The same can't be said for some of the most adamant debunkers of this case. And here we have a very odd situation of the Betty and Barney Hill abduction overlapping with the Travis Walton story. One point that is constantly alluded to by debunkers of the Travis Walton case is the fact that a TV movie about the Betty and Barney Hill incident was aired just shy of a month before the Travis Walton encounter. And that the TV movie had given Walton the idea to stage a UFO hoax. Right away, to me, that argument doesn't really hold water. Partly because, or mainly because, there are six other lumberjacks involved. I don't think that one guy who had just seen a TV show and had a harebrained scheme to pull off a hoax would be able to convince six lumberjacks to stick to the same story since 1975. It just doesn't make sense. It's too big of an ordeal. One of the most vocal opponents of the Travis Walton story was old-school debunker Philip J. Klass. That's K-L-A-S-S. Klass was an aviation engineer and editor of Aviation Week, a magazine, for 34 years. Klass is the guy who made a debunking career by ridiculing and slandering UFO witnesses across the 60s and 70s. When he couldn't logically refute their claims or their corroborators, He would attack the person. He was the guy who always pulled out a star map to give us the old, they just saw this or that star argument, making the case that there is a bright star in the sky at the time and direction in which a witness reported a UFO. This was a really handy method for a debunker because of the obvious reason that yes, there are stars in pretty much any direction from any vantage point on earth when looking up at the night sky talked about that in other episodes in class as well class came up with the lumberjack contract event hoax theory everyone involved including the local sheriff agreed that this idea was ridiculous the basic idea was that the guys were behind on the work for the contract they had with the forestry division of the state or whatever federal operation that had granted them the contract and that they weren't going to be able to finish on time, so they concocted this UFO abduction story to get out of the contract. Even if they were having trouble fulfilling a forestry maintenance contract on time, one of the guys getting abducted by a UFO wouldn't get them out of it or solve anything related to it. Philip J. Class also tried to bribe Travis Walton event witness and lumberjack Steve Pierce. He offered Pierce $10,000 in 1980 to say that it was all a hoax. Class actually tracked Pierce down and this would have been five years after the event. He found him working in another state and under a different name and he took the guy out to a fancy dinner and tried to bribe him but Pierce refused to take the money and he refused to say he or his friends were lying. And this was at a time when Pierce had lost contact with all of those guys. It was five years after the event, and Pierce could have, by all accounts, really used the money back then. It makes you wonder why someone like Philip Klass would go so far out of his way and expend so much just to get one guy to say something was a hoax. It's weird. Another thing Klass did was throw our old friend Stanton Friedman under the bus in a long letter to the Canadian Research Council. Stanton Friedman, as you probably know, is one of the OG UFO researchers. He was a nuclear physicist, and a few questionable Majestic 12 documents that he endorsed aside, he maintained a solid reputation for decades. Richard Dolan, another reputable UFO researcher and author, called the letter that Class wrote to discredit Friedman with the Canadian Research Council, quote, a scandalously, scathing, libelous letter. Stanton Friedman, who had far more class than Philip J. Class, ironically, created his list of four basic rules for debunkers, and I'm sure that this list was directed at least partly at class. Stanton Friedman's four basic rules for debunkers are, one, don't bother me with the facts my mind is made up. Two. What the public doesn't know, I'm not going to tell them. Three, if you can't attack the data, attack the people. And four, do your research by proclamation. Investigation is too much trouble. So we know what Richard Dolan and Stanton Friedman, and I'm sure Travis Walton thought about Philip J. Class, and all Philip J. Class ever really did was try to bribe one of the guys unsuccessfully to get him to say it was a hoax, and then come up with some crazy idea about the loggers were trying to get out of a contract, and that's why they said they saw a UFO. It's pretty weak. So Travis Walton has encountered more than his fair share of debunkers and genuinely fair-minded people who simply want more proof than he has been able to offer, beyond his own story and the fact that his coworkers saw a UFO and watched him walk into a beam of light and get blown away by something that took off. Now, this beam of light component of the story segues us into another theory that focuses on the hoax angle. This idea comes to us from Robert Schaefer, who writes for the Skeptical Inquirer. Schaefer claims that it's possible that on the night of the incident, after work, the crew could have taken a different road back to Heber, or Heber, where they were staying, and that road being Rim Road instead of their usual route along Black Canyon Road. So Schaefer thinks they took a different road home that night and doing so would have taken them past a forestry fire lookout tower known as Gentry Tower. You've probably seen or seen pictures of those tall towers with a little house at the top that they used to watch for forest fires out in the woods. The tower had a metal catwalk around the watchman's station and was equipped with a movable spotlight. Schaefer thinks that Travis Walton could have positioned an accomplice in the tower, called for the foreman driving the truck to stop at a predetermined position, after convincing him to take a different road home. And from that position, the accomplice in the tower could have ignited lanterns or flares to simulate a UFO that the men would have been viewing essentially in the air above the treetops with the trees offering cover for the overall tower structure below. Then Travis could have walked toward the tower to a clearing where the accomplice could have lit up the spotlight, aimed it at Travis, and simulated a beam from the UFO. This is an interesting theory for sure. It does however raise a few questions who was the accomplice and what would it have taken for him to be in position in the tower? A tower in the middle of a vast forest. Would the tower not have been manned by an official forestry worker at the time? How long would an accomplice have had to have been in the tower, and how could Travis and the accomplice be sure that Travis could convince the foreman to take another road back to town? Not just another road, but a road that takes them, from what I could estimate from the maps, about 8 miles out of their way, with the first leg of that road running in the opposite direction from their destination. And this was at the end of a long day doing hard work, cutting trees and dragging timber around the woods. You're going to take the scenic route home? Not only that, but none of the crew ever said they took the rim road past the tower on that or any other night. They say they always drove in and out of the worksite along Black Canyon Road, which is the direct route. Skeptics say that's a bumpier country road, but do lumberjacks care about a bumpy country road if it's the shorter, faster way home at night? Probably not. As we near the end of these cases, I want to include a fascinating take on the Travis Walton case from Travis himself. For years, he resented the aliens for essentially ruining his life and causing him trauma, mental anguish, and the stigma of being labeled a UFO kook. But in recent years, he has come to feel that what actually happened was that he got too close to the UFO and was injured by the radiation of the craft as it tried to depart, and that the beings actually brought him onto the craft to save his life. He now looks at what they did as a rescue mission. Interestingly, this is also the opinion of some of the other crew members. It's a cool viewpoint of the whole thing for sure. It's also a different twist on the typical abduction scenario. Another interesting discovery was made by some investigators who went back to the site with Travis Walton and together they found that the tree growth of the trees surrounding what Travis said was the landing spot displayed what they called accelerated growth. So the trees nearest the landing site had grown at what they calculated to be 36 times faster and bigger than the other trees in the same area. Also, the acceleration of the growth was directional, meaning that the rings on the sides of the trees facing toward the landing site were actually thicker than the rings on the other side of the same trees. UFO researchers point out that a similar effect has been noted on the tree rings facing Chernobyl and the radiation leak site there. The implication being that radiation somehow causes the trees to do this. I don't know. I wouldn't think I think it'd be the opposite, but I'm not I'm not an expert. So, we're just going to dive right into the summary here. And I'm going to tell you what I think. The Betty and Barney Hill thing seems like a couple who in the early 60s were dosed with lsd with or without them knowing and they saw something on the way home and it is possible that they did see a ufo imagine that imagine being dosed with lsd and actually seeing a ufo this was prime time mk ultra government dosing people with lsd era okay we know that from our mk ultra episode and betty and barney hill were both low-level government employees She was a social worker and he worked for the postal office. That makes them prime time candidates for some sneaky MKUltra hijinks. They had gone from New England on vacation to Canada, Niagara Falls, and we know that MKUltra had a presence in Canada as well. So it just seems to add up to me. Then after their LSD trip they came down and freaked out. They underwent hypnosis and filled in their fears with the story of being taken onto a UFO which was rolling through the popular culture at the time. Now this is just my opinion. You might not agree with me and that's okay. If anyone has other evidence besides Betty and Barney's hypnosis story, put it in a comment on one of our Instagram posts and I'd love to check it out. As for the Travis Walton story, I believe the lumberjack saw a UFO. It doesn't mean it's 100% fact that it was from outer space with aliens piloting it, but who's to say either way? They did all stick to the same story for decades. Walton seems credible, and I believe he believes his version of events, but we just have no evidence to support it, beyond what he said while he was under hypnosis. Now, I'm not a debunker, so I don't believe that the absence of proof is the proof of absence. And we do have the other six guys. Six other guys with really nothing to gain and actually a lot to lose saying, yes, we saw a 40-foot flying saucer glowing over the trees. It came down. When it took off again, it blasted our buddy through the air, and we bolted. They all describe the same thing, and Travis up to that point does too. We have classic jack wagon Philip J. Class trying to bribe one of the guys with 10000 bucks in 1980 to say it was a hoax, and the guy says, no, keep your filthy money. And that's a man who wasn't even friends with those guys anymore at that point. We have the accelerated tree growth at the landing site. This all took place right smack in the center of what I'm calling the extraterrestrial triangle, a location that's essentially equidistant from Roswell, Phoenix, and Area 51, three spots which form the trifecta of modern American UFO activity. As much as I wish there was more physical evidence for both the Travis Walton and Betty and Barney Hill cases, if I had to place a bet, I'd put my money on the Travis Walton incident being the more credible of the two. That's about as much as I can say. Thank you so much for coming along to investigate the Betty and Barney Hill versus Travis Walton cases and doing this abduction analysis with me. Be sure to check out our cool merchandise through our store. There's a secure link in the show notes and at our website where you can get cool Renegade Files hats, T-shirts and more. Grab some cool gear and help support the show. If you like what we do here, you can get bonus episodes and deeper content at patreon.com/renegadefiles. Also a link in the show notes. I can't wait to see you in there. Cheers. Here we are in 2024. This is our first show in January. Episode 57. I'm so glad to have you along for the ride. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm so glad to have you as part of the Renegade Files crew. Until our next episode, I am your host, Lex Gordon. Stay wild, space race child.